With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week, two excellent ones. Chad Finn is the fine sports media writer and general columnist for the Boston Globe. Alex Sherman is the fine CNBC media reporter. There's been a lot going on in the last seven days, so I wanted to bring on two people who who are marinating the space and working the space all the time. We lead with a long discussion on the TKO, TKO slash WWE uh, tenure deal with Netflix um, and the implications uh, that could extend to Netflix perhaps next time really going for it when it comes to sports rights. We talk about NFL viewership and what we think the best viewership matchup would be for the Super Bowl. Um, and then we get into a long discussion on Sports Illustrated and what is happening there. So if you're into sports media talk, I think you can appreciate this. Alex Sherman, CNBC media reporter, and Chad Finn of the Boston Globe coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, um, there's so much to talk about on this podcast, and who better to have than Chad Finn, the general columnist and sports media writer for the Boston Globe, and Alex Sherman, who is a CNBC media reporter. And uh, if you watch that channel or read cnbc.com you always see him when it comes to the intersection of sports and business and i'm pleased to be joined by both welcome chad welcome alex thanks happy to be here richard all right we're gonna start with um we're gonna start with netflix and tko slash wwe chad i know your favorite topic in the world given how much of a professional wrestling fan you are that's awesome. netflix or wwe yes, I'll, I'll lean i'll lean heavily on alex on this one all right so people i think know this but to to give you the cliff notes version tko on tuesday of this week uh announces a 10-year deal i guess jointly with netflix announces a 10-year deal with netflix for monday night raw which has been a longtime signature show in the wwe universe the rights deal on this is $5 billion or $500 million annually. That was way up from what Raw had with NBC Universal. Netflix has the option to extend the pact for an additional 10 years or to opt out after five years. That's actually a pretty interesting uh, part of that contract. All right, so before we get into some of the uh, more micro stuff, Alex, what was your um, big picture takeaway when you learned of this? Yeah. Um, so I think this is a historically significant deal from the Netflix standpoint. I mean, the uh, narrative 
with Netflix over the past few years has been this was a company that had many entrenched stances on uh, business traits. Uh, Netflix was always anti-advertising. For many years, they poo-pooed the idea of cracking down on password sharing, even though everyone knew that password sharing was rampant. And the company has long said they will not, do not see any path into live sports. And what we have seen is a cracking away of all of these long-held tenants of this company. Now, Netflix does have, have an advertising share. Not only have they cracked down on password sharing, it has been the key to a resurgence in subscriber growth for the company, which has very much led to a, 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 a quite a significant rise in its stock price over the past year. And now we are seeing something that is at least up to the edge of the cliff of getting into live sports. Uh, uh, Co-CEO Ted Sarandos on Netflix's earnings conference call said, no, no, this is not live sports. This is live sports entertainment and therefore core to what we do, more similar to uh, the various documentary series that we've done around sports rather than live sports. But of course, this is live sports. I mean, this is the, whatever you want to call it. This is live entertainment. This is something different for Netflix where they are renting out rights from a company, paying a lot of money for them, and will stream it live. That is not something that Netflix has ever done before. So it is only natural to assume that the next step here, which is now a baby step, would be for Netflix to enter the live traditional sports arena. Whether that's sooner rather than later, we'll see. I've already reported that they've at least had preliminary conversations with the NBA about maybe getting in and streaming a package of games or something like that. We'll see if that comes out uh, as true later this year, if they actually ink that deal or not. But they are at least at the precipice now of getting into traditional sports. And that's very significant for the entire media ecosystem. Yeah, that's a, and that is that's a that's a great synopsis, Alex. And then I'll go to you, Chad, because Alex, to me, hit on hit on the thing that it, in our world is the big takeaway. And does this deal mean that this is Netflix essentially dipping their toe in the water when it comes to the larger big thing, which would be them getting involved in live sports rights. Because if they ever do decide to do that, it changes the entire game because they are just in a financial place where they can blow out most of the traditional legacy companies out of the water. As Alex said, Chad, WWE is very, very different. Uh, you know, I am, I'm a longtime watcher. Um, they will handle all the production. And so in many ways, Netflix is just an incredible distributor for this product. But, you know, Chad, I'm sure you've written about this or at least thought about this as well. Um, if this is the forerunner, you know, for five to 10 years from now, where Netflix is a really legitimate player in the in the sports rights business, that that's the game changer um, for everything. Do you think it's that far down the road? Five or ten years. I mean, I, I mean, Alex. But I, no, I'm pro my uh, no, I'm just sort of just using that. the The reality would be, I mean, Alex, you can sort of weigh in on this after chat. I, I think, yeah, the timeline would be shorter. It, it would, it, I, you know, I mean, at this point in sort of media circles, like twenty three hours is is a is a is a, is ultimately a timeline sometimes. So yeah, I, I I don't think it'd be five to ten years if they actually decide to do this and this becomes part of their content strategy. I I think you would be. Let, let me let me be sort of uh, uh, conservative and say three to five years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, we're 
whenever we just see NBA rights coming up, we uh, I think the assumption and some reporting on that is that it'll probably it's likely to be uh, two streamers. Um, so you know whatever those turn out to be, Apple, you know Peacock, whatever. But we're going to have that discussion about Netflix with NBA and with a lot of other stuff. Uh, for the time being, though, it it feels like this is an opener for them. Just from yeah, I, as you said, I'm not a wrestling guy. I don't really follow it, but I recognize this tremendous brand loyalty there, um, the loyalty to the product overall. Um, I they really. They have a Netflix has a really strong sense, I think, of what they're going to get from this in terms of viewership and um, in terms of its uh, its appeal on their service and um, makes all the sense in the world. And it, I think you have to look at it as a really smart way to sort of, uh, I don't know, dip their toe, put their whole foot into the process of eventually um, having live sports on Netflix. I, I think your window there too, three to five years is probably what it is. Yeah, I mean, I may, and it may be, I may be a little uh, too conservative because actually in the predictions column, I, I predicted, <laughs> I went outside the box and predicted Netflix would get a um, a small NBA package as opposed to, I think, what a lot of people think. Um, did you have um, two streamers? Who's I your did, other yeah, one? I had Amazon as well. Yeah, oh, um, Amazon. You know, I think yeah, a lot of right. people think Prime. that NBC will get back in, but, you know, as Alex knows, sometimes you got to make these predictions columns and not go totally uh, not You got to totally remember chalk. what you said, too. <laughs> yeah. So, Alex, one of the things um, that's interesting to me in terms of the WWE side is that I think the deal is fantastic for WWE because just to me to be part of the Netflix um, uh, ecosystem with all their promotional might can only help WWE. The one thing about that audience is, as Chad said, it's loyal. They they will find you whether you're on Netflix, whether you're on um, you know Spike Television, <laughs> whether whether you're on you know whatever you know we anybody who's followed wrestling knows that they there's been an alphabet soup for. Um, you know, for fans over the years. So I think to me, I, I think it's a, a no brainer home run deal for WWE getting involved with a streamer it's sort of heading to the future on the, I'm curious though, because you, you have really covered this on the Netflix side. W- what's the Netflix calculation is the Netflix calculation that we think this is a kind of a new audience for us and it can, and it can build our subscriber base. Yeah. So I have a couple takes on the Netflix side. Um, one look, they're building out their advertising here and they've gotten off to a fairly slow start on that i mean they've they've said there's only 23 million active users they actually haven't even come up with their number of subscribers so the difference is a monthly active user is anyone that's sort of within your subscriber profile so you know in my household it's me my wife my kids we all have different profiles so each of those people if they're uh, using the advertising tier, Netflix is counting them as one of these monthly active users. So the subscriber number could actually be millions less than the 23 million number that they just came out with uh, a couple weeks ago. So this is now a lot of tonnage to that product. Uh, so they can sell advertising against it. It's it's you know multiple live events a week. Uh, it's not that much money over the long term. I mean, if you think about the the, the the TKO executive said this uh, uh, both to me and and on our air uh, that basically if a big movie costs you know two hundred and fifty million dollars to make this is five hundred million dollars a year so it's like two movies and you get all this live programming so that that's that's one thing second thing is that and it's funny because I saw uh, media reporter Claire Atkinson tweeted that 
she didn't get this deal from a branding perspective because it seemed like wrestling was maybe off-brand for Netflix. Then I said, I disagree. I actually think Netflix's brand has shifted in the past few years to mass market entertainment, right? They're looking to have something for everyone and they're looking for it to be something that is easily marketable, whether that's an Adam Sandler movie or a Jennifer Lopez movie or Love is Blind or you know whatever it may be. Uh, and I think wrestling can be uh, globally mass marketed and you can also build off shoulder programming around it, whether that be some sort of documentary behind the scenes thing that they do or even and possibly and this is part of the deal i'm told maybe building a series you know maybe maybe they want to do a horror series around the undertaker well if wwe and netflix both sign off on that now they can't uh and that's sort of a little sidelight part of it so i think i get it from netflix even like go going a level up i think it's more about what you just talked about which was like Netflix wants to dip its toe into this world, and maybe this is a safer way of Netflix doing it, where this is scripted entertainment. I reported yesterday that on uh, for people that get Netflix but don't get the ad tier, which is the vast majority of people, you're not actually going to get ads. They're going to script around the commercials, so you'll just get like a sustained headlock or like non non important match action as part of what you'll see if you're watching WWE and you don't uh you know you pay the 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 standard or the premium subscription where you're not getting ads. So in some ways it is a little bit of a of a half step to full live sports for Netflix and I think that also makes sense as they look to transition into this world in the future but maybe are not quite there yet. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated. I'm 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 fascinated by what becomes of this outside of wwe i know that netflix probably thought seriously about getting in f1 just given the relationship to drive survive but that that's a bear when it comes to uh the production element so i think this is an interesting way for them to get into sports entertainment and then to really sort of see how their how their subscribers react and how they re react institutionally so this one's not going away we will eventually get back to it on future podcasts Check out our new NBA show, Beyond the Arc, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, where you can find me, John Gonzalez, NBA insider Bill Ryder, and Ashley Nicole Moss, five days a week talking all things NBA. Whether you're looking for insightful discussions, upbeat commentary, breaking news, interviews, or coverage of all the biggest stories in the NBA, our new show is the place to be five days a week. Download and follow Beyond the Arc on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Chad, I'm going to start with you here. And the NFL viewership numbers came in for the divisional games. They were massive, not surprisingly. The four games averaged $40 million. That was up uh, 7% over last year, up actually over 2021 as well. Chiefs Bills averaged 50 million point four. I'm sorry, 50.4 million viewers. Uh, peak was even higher, obviously. The most watched divisional game on record. Um, the, uh, the NFL continues and out of home obviously viewership helps with this because they have better tracking now with nielsen chad but the nfl continues to grow in a time and place where so many other sports are either flat or declining when you saw those viewership numbers what'd you make of it uh 
Jason Kelsey shirtless drives traffic was probably that the viewership was uh, the number one take. But no, I mean, um, I thought it was interesting afterwards, Rich. I don't know if you had this experience, but uh, a super aggressive push from the NFL about these ratings and about these numbers. And um, I was I wasn't surprised by them, uh, particularly Bill's Chiefs. I know it's a huge number, 54. Million, but uh, that game was one that had buzz and anticipation, people talking about it, didn't matter what market you were in all week. Uh, so that that was a big surprise. The NFL's reaction to it is almost like they were kind of surprised about how high that particular number was. But, um, you know, we've seen this. Uh, the NFL owns right now whatever it wants to own. It takes Christmas a day essentially away from the NBA. Um, it's the one sport that Reson- resonates by multiples over everything else in terms of drawing people to their televisions, the bars now, I guess, too. You can count them. And uh, it, I, I, I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know when this ever takes its downturn because it just feels like it keeps growing and growing. Alex, from your perspective, again, I mean, you know, you guys live in a world at CNBC where, um, you know, somebody has an incredible earnings report or something like that. A stock price goes up. You, you guys don't really blink. So again, I, I, you know, the chat is correct in the sense that like none of this should ever be surprising anymore, uh, given the um, NFL increases. Here's the one thing I would say that, and this is just interesting to me, just as a sort of broader takeaway: in an era of polarization in America, in an era, in an era, obviously, where sort of everybody has chosen their tribes and political sides. The NFL is the one singular communal experience that, generally speaking, most Americans still agree on, um, which is incredible to me in 2024. And it doesn't seem like there's anything that, at least in our lifetimes, is going to change that. So here's here's my take on, on this. And I, I think that um, the NFL actually represents something of uh, an external, I don't want to say an external crisis for the industry, but uh, a, a major dilemma. And this is why. You look at these ratings, and the takeaway for me is that for popular live sports, which is basically football, linear TV still works. This still works. Most of these people, all of these people, for, for except for that one game that was Peacock exclusive, uh, are, are tuning into your traditional cable bundle to watch sports. So to me, media companies, traditional media companies that own these rights could come to the conclusion that they might be able to keep the linear TV ecosystem, which has been so profitable for media companies, alive simply by isolating football or other popular sports and saying, you know what? You want these, you got to subscribe to live linear cable you can you can get an antenna, I suppose, for some of the games. But you know, if you're ESPN or whatever, you keep football away from streaming, and we can keep streaming and and live linear going. Yeah, it's going to be diminished, but we can keep it alive. But that's not really what you're seeing. You are seeing these media companies push sports to streaming, and we saw it with 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 NBC Universal, my own parent company, that did it with this uh, with with the, with the Playoff game, Antenna estimated, I saw, that 2.8 million people signed up to Peacock uh, initially uh, uh, just to get that one game. And so these media companies are caught, I think. They're trying to figure out, 
Do we push football to streaming? Do we keep it away? Do we want all of these people subscribing? Do we want to escalate the transition of media? Have we thrown in the towel on cable TV? Should we be throwing in the towel on traditional TV? Uh, and, and, and I think that football very much is at the center of this debate because, well, all the other evidence shows declining ratings, like across the board, you see increasing ratings on football and a few other sports too. And so to me, that is the most interesting part of what we're going through now. How do these media companies uh, uh, look at this data and what conclusions do they come to? I agree. Um, Chad, one quick one before we get off football. Uh, the Super Bowl, historically speaking, has been viewership. Uh, you know, it's like it's like sort of like viewership proof in terms of like no matchup really is going to be a problematic matchup for the host broadcaster. In this case, this year, it's CBS between the Lions, the Niners, the Chiefs and the Ravens. Uh, if if I if, what if you were Sean McManus at CBS and David Burson? What would you most want? Maybe what would you le- most least want? Hmm. Well, I think AFC is a tougher call. Um, the 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 Chiefs are obviously super familiar. Six straight AFC championship games, and Mahomes, the uh, you know, has replaced Brady as the uh, the face of the sport. But uh, Lamar Jackson's an incredible story too. Probably MVP this year. Guy, nobody. Uh, Really tried to sign in free agency when he was unrestricted uh, and uh, kind of a it's not really a redemption, but just a great story in general for him this year. Uh, I think probably they would lean KC there in the NFC. I think you want Detroit, right? That's just an amazing story. Um, You know, never having even won a playoff game going back until the early 90s. What, 91 was it until this year? Uh, The Dan Campbell angle and the the charisma that he has and uh, uh, kind of the 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 straightforwardness and the appeal of him and it's familiar too from hard knocks a couple of years ago so people already know him but detroit's an amazing story the city uh, i think people will be rooting for them as good as the niners are and then uh probably kansas city on the other end i mean you you want you want kansas city for caleb swift like that that that's a b is the oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 that's that, yeah. kansas city i think i actually think the the kansas city part is the easiest one as alex said you want taylor swift then you want patrick mahomes both are <laughs> proven viewership commodities i would take the lions uh personally because i find that story fascinating but you know san francisco's a bigger market than detroit alex you want to weigh in on this I'm a huge 49er fan. I'm too biased for that. <laughs> yes, I have seen that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How much of an impact do you think Taylor Swift has on the viewership? On the Super I mean, Bowl? Can we put I, I a think, number on it? Yeah, I think, I mean, I'll let you go, Alex, after me. Yeah, I think it's a couple million, Chad, in all honesty. And I, I don't think there would be any other human being on earth I may say that about. What about you, Alex? I think it's absolutely a couple million and probably would be significantly more for the Super Bowl. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, if, if the Chiefs make the Super Bowl, she will clearly be there. It'll be a significant story. I would actually, I think that might be the first time we would see the host broadcaster or a broadcaster, I should say, get Taylor Swift, uh, maybe for a quick interview about football. All right, a couple more things here, um, Alex. I know this is your company, but really quick, um, do you have any kind of guess as to what the churn may be for Peacock? in terms of February when the people who signed up for that Chiefs playoff game, um, you know, the, the, the subscription is up for the month. 
I have no idea what it will be, but I can tell you internally, like there's a lot of attention on it. I think people are really interested to see what the churn will be like for February. Incidentally, um, it's good news to go back to our earlier subject for WWE because Peacock has the Royal Rumble. Yes, it um, does. And all of those people that signed up for the uh, NFL playoff game. They get it. January 27th. In. Exactly. He grandfathered in. So if there is any crossover there, um, that 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 will be helpful for the WWE for its own viewership. So we could throw that in there. Nice. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I think I do think the viewers, uh, the uh, there's not as much crossover as maybe the general public might think. But you are correct. If uh, you happen to be, you know, the last days of your Peacock subscription and you see the Royal Rumble and you get excited about it, who knows? Maybe you go another month. I will say ju- just just quickly a-, a plug for my own company. Uh, Peacock also will have the Olympics this yes. year. So there is a sports community possibility. Not to say that they won't churn off and re-sign up. But, you know, I, I, I think there's some potential. Uh, and again, I'm not really sure what NBC Universal is doing about this. If they're marketing, hey, stick around like in a few months, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a lot more cool sports for you. Um, I, maybe they should be doing more of a marketing campaign on that. Or maybe maybe they figure, you know what, like that's going to be a tough sell uh, to convince people. And, 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 and we don't want to actually draw attention to the fact that you can cancel off because I think a lot of this is uh, inertia in this world. Like, Hey, I signed up for it. And you know what? Like I forgot. And so now I'm just signed up. Uh, There's, you know, again, like I go back to, I don't remember what the number was, but like, you know, there were like 2 million AOL dial up subscribers, like 15 years after that business died. So, you know, some of this game, I think is that like I signed up and then like, it just goes out, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, by the way, let me as an aside, let me just give a big shout out to uh, Steve Case and Jerry Levin. As, as a young Sports Illustrated reporter, when that deal went down, I mean, thank you very much, guys, for just setting up my future just so beautifully for those two companies to come together in the worst ever merger. <laughs> so the uh, the one thing I, I, I want to make sure we, we talk about before we get out of here is um, Sports Illustrated. And I'm going to go to you, Chad. Obviously... Anybody listen? Anybody kind enough to listen to this podcast knows that um, that was my employer for a long, long time. I worked there for 19 years, essentially straight out of grad school. That was my dream place to work, and um, and I'll never have an affinity for another employer uh, like that. No, certainly no disrespect to the athletic who's treated me great, but um, it's just that was my dream place to work. Um, there were layoffs uh, announced last week amid an ongoing dispute between. The Authentic Brands Group and the Arena Group, those are the two companies that are part of the ownership structure for Sports Illustrated. For people who don't know, uh, the Authentic Brands Group sort of owns the rights to the brand, and they're a licensing company. Uh, you know, they have the license, I think, for Marilyn Monroe, Elvis Presley, some others, all sorts of brands. Arena Group pays or has paid them a certain amount of money for the rights to publish, I think it's $15 million, for the rights to publish Sports Illustrated in print and online. Once the Arena Group missed its payment of a couple million dollars to the Authentic Brands Group, this is when Authentic Brands Group said that that violated the terms of the licensing deal. And from there, um, layoff notices then went out um, because of the end of this, it basically sort of in short that the the people who produce the magazine, but the people who produce the website and write are caught in the middle of this, you know, nonsensical war between two places that, in my opinion, just really have just not 
cared about this legacy brand. So that's where we are. Some There were a group of people who were laid off immediately. The rest of Sports Illustrated's editorial employ, employ, employees were told that they had 90 days before things would happen. There's obviously union involvement in this as well. I probably could have done a more elegant job of explaining it, but that's sort of the bare bones on it. It's a, It has been an aw- yet again another awful month in media layoffs. We've seen it at the Washington Post. The Los Angeles Times just this week as we were taping this lost 20% of their uh, their staff. It just It's never-ending. It's awful. This one is particularly personal to me, of course, because I work there. Chad, you I thought you wrote a really great column that um, – that sort of just gave the sort of a larger sort of a larger sort of thought about like what is lost with this, even if you don't think Sports Illustrated is the same place as it was twenty five years ago. And I wonder just even for my audience, just when you when you saw the news and reported about this, like what what were your sort of thoughts about it? Well, it's I think the there's a really common thought about it, right? Just you immediately default to nostalgia. You think about your favorite Gary Smith story or Rick Riley back page column or whatever, and uh, everybody goes to social media and rattles off their favorite covers. Um, and that's understandable. But as this went on, and I, I did that too, um, I started thinking about kind of when people – faded away from Sports Illustrated or when Sports Illustrated lost them as subscribers. And I was asking people like, uh, when was the last time you looked at the magazine? Do you, um, do you know their publication schedule right now? My dad still receives it and it's spotty, um, the print version monthly, but sometimes it feels like it doesn't come monthly. Um, you, you go back nine years is when they got rid of all their staff photographers, which is the other Thing you associate with uh, Glory Days Sports Illustrated, the, the spectacular unmatched photography with the quality of the writing. And um, all these people were are, are longing for a day that's been gone for a while. And it just, um, it made me think, just think about when Sports Illustrated lost them, when which of these, what, four owners they've had since Time Inc. Uh, with their cuts and their venture capital deci- based decisions and um, real no sense for uh prolonging the 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 quality of the product um when the you know when they started uh, when when people lost track of something that once meant so much for them so that was kind of what i was more interested in beyond the fact that you've got all these great people that still work there uh still some name writers that uh you know jobs are in jeopardy alex i want to ask you about the business end of this because that's your your expertise um you know, just again, if I could put my own personal feelings aside, I, I I would think that the name of the brand still has um, business relevance so that someone could take that brand and create some kind of editorial product around it. What what that means in practicality or actuality, I, I don't know. At a certain point, whatever the, you know, the, 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 contest between ABG and the arena group will end in some way, either in litigation or elsewhere. But again, as someone who covers sports business on a, on a daily basis, like, do you think there is a future for sports illustrated as an editorial product, not just as a 
brand where I'm walking in a mall one day and I see like a Sports Illustrated bar or a Sports Illustrated um, toy shop? Yeah, that is a tough one because I think there's a lot of variables here. Um, I think the Sports Illustrated brand still is associated with uh, its heyday. So it has not degraded despite the fact that it has not been what it used to be for quite a while now. And to be honest, not not to diminish this most recent sort of quote-unquote death of Sports Illustrated, but you know this has happened like four times now. There's been like four deaths of Sports Illustrated. So it has, it has dragged a little while. That said, if I'm going to... What, what they would essentially have to do is restart themselves using the brand. And... When I look at successful media startups in the modern day, to me, the common playbook is you start very small and you sort of build your way up incrementally over time. It takes years. And if you try to go big, you know, you hire hundreds of employees and I'm going to cover everything everywhere. Like those efforts tend not to do quite as well. If you look at like the athletic, for instance, it started small, you know, one market and then two markets. Or if you look for people that are in the media, if you look at what Puck is doing, they have like 13 journalists, you know, and it's like, we're going to start small. If you look at what this Washington publication, The Messenger, tried to do, they tried to hire 500 employees right off the bat. And that has been an utter disaster for them. So if you were to rejigger Sports Illustrated, you'd have to kind of alter what they do, I think. And you'd maybe have to hire a very small number of maybe long-form sports journalists and try to go way back, you know, try to try, try to hit Sports Illustrated and what they did in the 70s. And, and, and maybe you would generate an audience among 10 writers for long form sports journalism and you find some white space that doesn't really exist today with a smaller audience and kind of build it up very slowly over time. But this idea that it could just be sort of this resonant magazine media powerhouse that it used to be like, I think there's no chance of that. Would you even have a print product? I don't think you would. I yeah. don't think you'd have a print product. No, no. I think it would be an all digital one and it would be subscriber and maybe you'd have to do events. You know, you have to you'd have to have a modern media business. You can't just say, "Well, Sports Illustrated was popular forty years ago, so like the brand is strong enough that we can replicate that business." No, you can't. Yeah, like that. That's dead. That's life. I think you're you're. It's interesting you say that, Alex. And I'll leave the readers with this. There was a time when I was there that a couple of very smart people pitched management on the notion of becoming for lack of a better phrase, kind of the New Yorker of sports, where they would essentially, you'd lose a lot of mass circulation. And in exchange, you'd go very much and lean into very much into the, obviously the kind of feature writing we call the bonus pieces that SI was famous for. And you'd have a scaled down staff uh, at some point and you'd charge the, the readers a lot more money than what SI was being charged for at the time to try to make it a really high-end product and then do like a lot of experiential stuff like the way Sports Business Journal does like 
conferences. I'm sure CNBC does this as well and create an event business around this very high-end, high demographic, high financial product. Now, obviously, you know, um, nobody who was in management at the time is going to give up their <laughs> their salaries because they were probably being uh, compensated on, you know, what kind of ads they brought in or, or how much revenue the magazine made. But the people who would pitch that were on to something like 10 years ago because I think they saw the future in that like – that the the sustainability of that product was not there. It just eventually, um, every year, I remember going to a lot of meetings where you'd see every single year, these genius people in uh, research would tell us how the average age of the subscriber was going up and up and up. And just, <laughs> it wasn't sustainable. Like you just- Sounds familiar. Yeah, you just, you couldn't, you had to get young people in there. SI was way too late to the web as well. Like we could do 20 podcasts on that. But CNN um, SI was great. Yeah, well, I mean, again, they had. That's why we have Peter King. Had had, and again, I'm not saying you know what. What did I know? I was 25 years old, but like, had had there been visionaries there who would have seen what that could have been, and then maybe got into television rights, or maybe merged with whoever ESPN. You know, it would be a different world, but um, but nobody saw it. But Alex, I think you're. I, I happen to agree with you. If I always sort of dream that there's some wealthy person out there who just fell in love with SI as a kid and decides to buy it in be, because of the love for the magazine and then creates, like you said, a staff of like 20 people to, to put out that product that you mentioned and you live with the fact that your subscription base is now, I'm making this up, okay? It's 35000 to start or 50000 to start and not $3 million. And then you go from there. And I think that could work. I think smart, if there are smart people running it like that, I, I think you'd have a business. But I just don't know if there's anybody out there who's willing, who'd be willing. One, I don't know what ABG is going to do. And two, I don't know if that person exists out there who'd be willing to do it. You know, oddly, Grantland tried to sort of be that from a digital standpoint, you know, whenever that was 10 years ago under Bill Simmons. Obviously not in the same business model, but not a subscription business, not an events business, just a free add-on to ESPN. Uh, but but now that they've gone away, the ringer hasn't really replicated what Grantland did. So there is at least a white space out there. Yeah. Although they got into although the ringer the ringer really did a phenomenal job with podcasting, which yeah, they didn't want to repl replicate Grantland. Yeah, which they, is well, something. Did, yeah, that, that was sort of like, and that is <laughs> yeah. Now I'm getting a headache because that was another place where Sports Illustrated. Think of all the people who worked at Sports Illustrated. Think of the podcast network you could have put together and just never never went down that. Never went down that road, but I know what you're, you're saying, Alex, and like that—that well, well, that so the Grantland approached it as a high, like a a very high-end writing product. And, and and I guess what I'm saying is that I, there's probably a reason that Bill Simmons decided we don't want to do like we don't want to do Grantland again, and maybe it's because there's a somewhat limited audience for that, and that's why you have to be a little bit more creative about what you're doing. To your point about podcasts, that would be an obvious part of the new Sports Illustrated, like. You'd have some podcasts. You'd have some more inventive podcasts. And like we see a little bit around the edges of that about what Meadowlark is doing right now, you know, with Pablo Torre's podcast is sort of like this, try to like branch out into something beyond sports a little bit, but keep it sports centric. Like Sports Illustrated is a brand that could bring some of that to the table. And again, it could probably run a reasonable business, but like you'd have to lower your expectations, I think, about what this thing would be, at least initially. Yeah, I think the three of us can agree on one thing, right? Holy shit, is it hard to make money in journalism long term? <laughs> I mean, the evidence, you would have to be blind 
not to see the evidence in front of you. Like you need to be really strategic about it. You need to have low expectations from the beginning and have a long timeline to grow yourself. It is possible. There are success stories out there, but you know, there's a lot more negative news than positive news in this industry. The one thing I will say is that there's a lot of coverage on job losses in the media industry because it's the media industry covering the media industry. And I do tell myself and it's a great point. where it's like, you know, the LA times cut 115 jobs and it's like, well, yeah, but like, I also read an article that Citigroup cut 20,000 jobs. Like you do need to put some of this into perspective from a scale standpoint and just from a kind of human carnage standpoint that, yeah, look, this is an industry that is transitioning right now. And so there are going to be a lot of entities that kind of don't make it. Um, and you you just hope that at least some of that is is buffered by new entities taking their place that have a more modern business model that maybe at least on a small scale works. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I must tip my hat to the Sports Business Journal who came up with that events business whenever they did long ago, because that is such a that was such a great ancillary business to have in addition to your product, which obviously charges a lot of money. And Alex, you are correct. I mean, honestly, find someone who loves you as much as media entities love writing about each other and and about job losses. You, you are <laughs> you're dead. You're dead on that. I'm not saying it's not an important story. It is, but it, it, it does get overweighed um, against some of the other sort of job loss stories that exist. I do think though that like it's so personal to the people who are writing, and that's sort of why you write about it because you just viscerally, viscer, viscerally feel it all the time. It's um, big Alex, on social but, media too. I it mean, does, it, yeah. It, well, I mean, all the reporters as, are on there, so it gets yeah. The three, as the three of us know, um, right before we take our last step on Earth, um, look down and it'll be uh, a Twitter feed, basically. That's <laughs> Um, the uh, Alex, before I let you go, I know you're working. You were telling me before we started that it's kind of interesting. You're so you're working on a piece right now, right? That will um, a doc that that will sort of focus on ESPN's um, ESPN's leap into the streaming universe. Don't want you yeah, tell my listeners is, about th that. This yeah. is exciting for me. It it, it will publish, I, you know, sometime in the spring. I don't know the exact date yet, but um, I've been uh, you know inter interviewing people uh, that currently work at ESPN. Uh, that used to work at ESPN. Uh, I don't know exactly how much I can say, but like you know, they're 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 big name people, uh, and they're talking about the future of ESPN and can ESPN survive in a streaming dominated world. And this is very much a a live story as ESPN looks for strategic partners and as ESPN thinks about when they want to launch their big flagship direct to consumer product that they haven't launched yet and they haven't priced it at. So we're doing a documentary. Uh, you know, before some of these decisions are made, but probably not that much before uh, to try to talk about what is Disney thinking? What is ESPN thinking in terms of how they're going to compete long term when suddenly they're not competing against uh, Fox and NBC and CBS for sports rights, which were competitors that ESPN grew to to dwarf in size and in balance sheet, but instead are competing against Netflix, as we talked about and Apple and Google and Amazon, whose balance sheets are enormous and dwarf Disney and ESPN. And how do they negotiate this uh, and keep the, the brand resonant with younger people? Again, to go back to our Sports Illustrated question, to sort of avoid the Sports Illustrated fate and to be resonant with people you know, ten, 10 years down the road. How's leadership thinking about that? Do they have a chance at it? That's what the documentary is about. 
That's going to be really interesting. By the way, congrats to ESPN. You've gone four days without basically being like uh, in the soup when it comes to bad news. So yeah, you're, you're, con- con- congrats to uh, new new comms leader Josh Krulowitz. Josh, on, Kru- uh, Josh, Kru- I think he put four days. Well, they need an NBA broadcaster now. Oh, that's right. We didn't even get into Doc Rivers. <laughs> Chad, you want to let's finish up on this really quick. So, Doc, Doc I, I, literally, as we're taping this, Doc, it formally it's been uh, reported that Doc is now with the Bucks. Um, so if you're, I mean, first of all, you should never got rid of Van Gundy. What, what a disastrous move that then again, they were worried he was going to coach was part of it. Yeah, such, such a, so, so basically <laughs> Chad, my thought is that if, if you're ESPN, I, it, there's no reason why you just don't ride with Doris and Breen and just like, that's, yeah. that's your team for the finals. I don't know if you need to add Reddick or Jefferson or whatever, but anyway, how, how do you see it playing out? And then we'll get out of here. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know if that's what they'll do. They seem to really like that three person dynamic, but. Yeah, I mean Doris is uh, so familiar, you know. Even even on doing the finals games on the radio sh- and uh, on ESPN Radio and with Mark Jones, and um, I think you'd be fine with her and Breen. But uh, they got to be furious the with Doc just because um, there were a lot of reasons why Van Gundy got let go. I think the NBA was tired of him complaining about the officials all the time, but. Uh, part of it was they thought he was going to head back into coaching too and uh, to have the guy that you you hired to replace him uh, depart a little past the halfway mark of the season is uh, is wild yeah and yet another example and this happens all the time in this increasingly uh, sports media space of uh, a guy most likely negotiating with an NBA team while he's broadcasting games for that league uh, you know we know tennis and not only right. that he was an advisor for the Bucks. Which I don't know if that was. Yeah, I don't know how for that that we have seen a little bit more in sports media. I don't know how formal or not it was, but uh, yeah, feels like some Game of Thrones stuff with Doc here. Well, I mean, no, no place, no place like ESPN when it comes to Game of Thrones. All right, anyway, Alex Sherman is the uh, fine CNBC media reporter, Chad Finn, sports media writer for the Boston Globe. Alex and Chad, thank you very much, Alex. We will look for your documentary when it comes out. You'll pr- you might be back on here before it comes out, but uh, but that's going to be really uh, interesting piece of reporting. And good luck with that. Thank you, Alex, and thank you, Chad. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Rich. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Chad Finn and Alex Sherman for their time and insights. Previous podcast recently, Paul Feinbaum was a guest on this podcast last week, talking about Nick Saban. I think you appreciate that. Karen Brodkin and Hillary Mandel, who are uh, the co-heads of WME Sports, and which is a part of the Endeavor Group, um, on what they do, uh, which is really, really fascinating, and that's negotiate deals for sports leagues, conferences, etc. James Andrew Miller came on to talk about Pat McAfee. Bill Bunnell and Jimmy Platt, producer and director of Monday Night Football, were on this podcast to talk about what they do. Hubie Brown, the longtime and acclaimed ESPN NBA analyst. If you like these podcasts, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. That is how this podcast continues. I want to thank Patrick Antonetti for all his hard work. Thanks to everybody at Odyssey for their support. Thank you for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.